Church, as we invite uh, the Lord to be our vision in all things as a church, as a people, we continually look to His Word, for we want to be led by Him. So let me invite you to open up the Scriptures with me today. And uh, if you are visiting with us or haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are in a series from the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, And it is our regular practice, as we've said before, most often to uh, study through sections or books uh, or series Uh, devoted by a systematic study of God's Word. That ensures that we invite uh, the Lord to lead us and to speak to us. And so today we find ourselves in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures uh, with you today or on your phone or or, or with someone next to you, then let me encourage you to use a pew Bible. And uh, I think you can find this text on about page 960 uh, in our church pew Bibles. But today we come to... Uh, a, a good text, but a difficult text. Every text of Scripture is a good text. So we invite the Lord to speak to us. We expect Him to speak to us. We know that He is with us, and we pray that He would guide us as we open His Word together. Uh, as you find your place there in First Timothy chapter 2, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's Word. Let's hear the Word of the Lord today. First Timothy chapter 2, I'll begin in verse 1 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in our godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Verse 8, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Let's bow together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken and who continues to speak. So, Lord, we ask now that you would speak clearly through your word, for your church is listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, y'all know that I wanted to stop after verse 10, don't you? (laughs) You know, really, I would have been quite comfortable stopping after verse 8, but I would have settled for verse 10. I mean, I fought with Paul all week, saying in my mind, come on, man, you're killing me. Do you know where I live? I mean, these verses were controversial in America 50 years ago. 
Now, they are downright laughable. But I want to remind you, and also I want to remind you, I want us to remind ourselves of two truths this morning as we dive into this, as we consider God's Word. Number one, the gospel of Jesus has challenged social and cultural norms and values since its inception. And number two, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, friends, we cannot dismiss difficult texts like this one simply because we find them uncomfortable or outdated. Uh, In fact, that sort of flippant approach to the voice of God has had a detrimental impact on the witness of the church in our day, and I dare say, in some respects, has so twisted the standard of God that numerous souls have been affirmed in sin, contributing to failure to repent, and ultimately, eternity in hell. So we want to take the Word of God seriously. In fact, it is that very issue, I believe, a passion for evangelism that produces Paul's words in this chapter. So we're going to do our our very best over the next uh, little bit to get to some of the specifics here, to, to deal with some of the very tough stuff here in a way that is faithful to principles of biblical interpretation. But in the process, we need to hear the primary message that is being proclaimed. And this is it, I think. We pray, preach, and practice the gospel for the glory of Jesus in the world. Is our task. We have been instructed, all churches have been instructed, all believers have been instructed to pray, to preach, and to practice the gospel for the glory of Jesus in the world. Sometime in the mid-60s A.D., Paul puts ink to Papyrus, urging his, his young friend and co-laborer in the gospel, Timothy, to contend for the truth at the church in Ephesus, to confront uh, teachers there, false teachers there, who are leading the church astray. This letter, 1 Timothy, then becomes uh, the content of that letter, is the content of that letter, and is a blueprint of sorts, a guide for what a church built upon the central message of salvation in Jesus ought to look like. And Paul says that faithful churches pray for the preservation of that message. Uh, the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ and the multiplication of that message throughout the world. So what does a gospel-centered church look like? Paul says uh, the church prays for the preservation and multiplication of the gospel. The church prays for the preservation and multiplication of uh, the gospel. I know we have a number of runners in uh, our church, long-distance runners, half mar- 5Ks, half marathons, marathons, and, and, and perhaps more than that. I don't know. Uh, I commend you for that. Good for you. I, I'm not a big uh, runner. One time, one time I did run a 5K, so that's sort of the experience that I'm going on here. Some of you have far surpassed that and do so on a regular basis. Uh, but uh, the emphasis here in First Timothy chapter uh, 2, the beginning of this chapter, sort of reminds me of the start of a marathon. And so all this hype, all these runners line up, presumably near the, uh, the starting point, near the starting line. Uh, they're ready to go. They're, they're psyched up. They're ready to run. A big crowd of folks. Uh, then the signal goes off, whether it's a, a horn or a whistle or a gun fires, and they take off. Sort of in an anticlimactic way. 
it's not like a, a short distance run. It's not like a 100 meter dash or 200 meter dash where they just take off flying and it's going to happen fast. No, they, they take off at a steady pace and they continue that pace for hours and hours until they complete the race. Knowing that they must go because if they, if they don't go, they won't finish the race. They certainly won't win the race. What sort of seems like that here when Paul says, hey, you want to be a church that honors the Lord, first of all, of primary importance, first of all, hear this, you need to be people who pray. You need to be people who pray. You see, when it comes to guarding the gospel and contending for the gospel and celebrating the gospel, you start with prayer. The posture and the practice of prayer helps ensure that what we say and do finds significance in God. In other words, the very idea of prayer suggests that there is a God. Uh, neither you nor I are Him. He is greater than us. We want to bow before Him. So when we gather... Friends, when we have church, when we come together as a body of believers, we must pray in accordance with God's purposes. Consider what the early church did. Recorded in Acts chapter 4, upon the release of two of its leaders, John and Peter, who have been arrested, threatened, commanded not to preach anymore at all in the name of, of Jesus. And they return to the believers, and then together, Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they begin to pray. And this is what they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. You see, their prayers for boldness in evangelism are consistent with Paul's instructions here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We pray because God desires all to know Him. We, we pray. We pray for the preservation and the multiplication of the gospel because we serve a God, the only God, who desires all to know Him. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. See, this is a reminder that receiving salvation involves knowing the truth. There is a discernible content to the message we believe, and we must get it right. Friends, this is why we don't compromise in the church when it comes to God's Word. This is why we don't compromise when it comes to the mission and the message of Jesus for people's eternity depends upon knowing and proclaiming the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ died as a ransom for all. We pray for the preservation and multiplication of the gospel because God desires all to know Him and because Christ died as a ransom for all. Christ died as a ransom for all. Verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This is this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Paul continues in verse 7 to essentially say, this, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is, this is why I'm preaching. This is why I'm a herald. This is why I'm an apostle. This is why I'm proclaiming the truth. Because Jesus redeemed us. 
We were guilty and He purchased us. He saves us through His sacrifice. God pardoned us. Jesus purchased our freedom from condemnation and guilt and gave us salvation by His grace. This is why He came in the first place. Jesus Himself says, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, referring to Himself, He said, For even the Son of Man, even I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus alone does this. There is no other way. The price has been paid. The sacrifice has been offered. Full pardon is available for all who believe. Salvation is found in no uh, one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. See, because Jesus is the once and for all solution to the problem of sin, the Scriptures say that we must pray. We must be a people who pray when it comes to God's mission. Prayer is the easiest thing that we can do. And according to the Bible, according to the Scriptures, our prayers make a difference, an eternal difference. And so we are called, we are invited, we are instructed to pray specifically that leaders would believe. Pray that leaders would believe. So during the writing of this letter, the wicked uh, emperor Nero was ruling the Roman world. Nero was quite hostile and unkind to Christians. And so regardless of political persuasion, regardless of personal likability, the church must engage in praying for government leaders, kings, presidents, Governors, congressmen and women, mayors and other representatives for these men and women affect the ease with which the church grows. So when we gather, we're to pray that leaders would believe and we're invited, instructed, commanded to pray that believers would bear fruit. Let's pray that believers would bear fruit. Verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You see, we're to pray for one another. Believers are to engage in prayer for the well-being of each other, for the growth in Christ of one another. Believers here and throughout the world that we would live lives that reflect the goodness and the grace of the God who saves us. So let's pray that leaders would believe. Let's pray that believers would bear fruit. And let's pray that unbelievers would trust Jesus. Let's pray that unbelievers uh, would trust Jesus. Listen to the emphasis in this passage on on all. First of all, verse 1. First of all, emphasizing that this is of primary importance. First of all, petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Four different words for prayer, highlighting the significance of this task. Prayers for who? For all people. Uh, meaning all kinds of people. For kings and all those in authority. Verse 2. God our Savior. Verse 4. Who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The man, Christ Jesus, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Verse 7, and to witness to this truth, Paul says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a true and faithful teacher of who? The Gentiles. A word that signifies the evangelism going to the nations, all the nations of the world, the ends of the earth. So church, a central part of our task when we gather is to pray. 
to pray specifically for the preservation and the multiplication of the gospel. So let's be a people who pray. Let's be a people who pray that leaders would believe and that believers would continue to grow and that unbelievers from all over the world would trust in Jesus Christ, the one who reconciles the people of the world to the eternal ruler over all. So the word of God known as 1 Timothy chapter 2 instructs us to this end, instructs us to be a people of, of prayer for the preservation and multiplication of the gospel and to be a people who glorify God by practicing order and harmony with his design. The church glorifies God by practicing order and harmony with his design. In fact, this is why we have this letter. This is where First Timothy comes from. For in the very next chapter, chapter 3, Paul tells us why he's writing. He tells us, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, he's talking to Timothy in Ephesus, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that, verse 15, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul says to Timothy, essentially, be sure that the church is a praying church. A church that prays for all kinds of people. For Jesus died for all kinds of people. And then in verse 8, he turns his attention to address some of the particular issues in Ephesus that are hindering the effectiveness and the faithfulness of the church's prayers. I don't know if we have... Uh, any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Uh, I like the Lord of the Rings. I haven't watched it too many times, but uh, I was refreshing uh, myself, enjoying uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, the first in that movie trilogy last night after the kids went to bed. If you know anything about the movie, it's far too long to watch after the kids go to bed. So uh, I watched about half of it, and then I went to bed. But uh, seen it a few times, and in that first uh, part of the story, the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Frodo and eight other companions come together for a particular mission to destroy a ring that has had terrible influence uh, in Middle-earth. And so they set out for this task. The odds are against them. Very, very difficult task. Uh, the enemy is, is growing and, and coming for them. But not only from the outside, several points along the way in the journey, uh, the fellowship uh, of the nine comes under attack from within, as temptation lurks, as pride uh, abounds, threatening the effectiveness and the faithfulness of the mission at hand. And here in Ephesus in the first century, it's as if Paul is saying, church, you need to be a praying church. You need to focus on the gospel. You need to pray for the preservation and multiplication of the gospel. But there are some things that are taking place in the fellowship in the community of believers that are hindering the faithfulness of your prayers to that end. Namely, some of the men are either not engaged in prayer at all, or they are pretending to offer up pure prayers in the midst of fighting with one another. And Paul says Christian men must replace division with submission to Christ. Christian men must replace division, division in the church, with submission to Christ. Verse Hey, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. 
In other words, it's like Paul says, move beyond the quarrels. Get over the, the fighting, the power struggles, the petty disagreements that so often entangle churches and bow before Jesus. In, in essence, the text says, you've strayed from what matters. You've strayed from the one who is the head. Get along by returning to Jesus. Don't go rushing into corporate prayer when you come together. Confess your sin to God. Receive His mercy. Make amends with one another. Live at peace with each other. Live at peace with God and the household of God. Offer pure prayers flowing from hearts and lives that are right with God and right with each other. Christian men must replace division with submission to Christ And secondly, Christian women must replace vanity with worship. Must replace vanity with worship. So here's Paul speaking into a particular culture in which it was common for women to dress in a way to draw attention to themselves, either to seduce men in the congregation or uh, to exert their social status over other women. And Paul essentially says, dress in a way that honors Jesus. Dress in a way that honors Jesus. Even though the world around you screams at you to flaunt yourself, to promote yourself, essentially, he says, get over yourself and come to church, not only with your heart and your mind set on worshiping the Lord, but also dressed in such a way that does not distract the others around you from fixing their focus on worshiping Jesus either. Church, on this point, I imagine that Paul might have fairly similar words for us today. I was shocked this past week when I read an article in the New York Times that suggested that enforcing high school dress codes uh, was somehow an abuse and violation of of girls' rights. The argument, and perhaps you saw this, this was uh, quite popular in the news the last couple of weeks, but the the argument exalted the freedom of expression, not denying the reality of distraction, but diminishing its significance when weighed against the choice of the individual. The autonomy of the individual, a.k.a. the idolization of self, is the mantra of our day. And friends, when we get caught up in such vanity and foolishness, may we repent and seek the mercy of God. The Bible says distractions matter. There is one God and you nor I are him. There's one central purpose for our church gatherings, worshiping this God. And any division or vanity that distracts from pure prayer in worship must be addressed For the glory of God and for the sake of the spread of His saving grace. Christian men must replace division with submission to Christ. Christian women must replace vanity with worship. And thirdly, I think Paul says that all Christians must honor the gender qualification for the position of pastor. All Christians called to honor the gender qualification for the position of pastor. So here is what I think is going on here in this complicated text of 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 through 15. I think Paul is anchoring the position of pastor slash elder slash overseer. Three different words used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office in the life of the church. I think Paul is anchoring that position among men. It's not a, not a blanket prohibition. 
against women in any type of teaching role or leadership position in the church. And to that end, Scripture, as always, is Scripture's own best interpreter. We have other New Testament texts that support women teaching and serving the church in significant ways. In fact, Paul assumes women are co-laborers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, he mentions two of them, Euodia and Syntyche, who contended at his side, these are his words, contended at his side in the cause of the gospel. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, all Christians, both men and women, are told to teach and admonish one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the whole congregation is told to instruct one another for the strengthening of the body. In Acts chapter 18, verse 26, both Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, uh, bring Apollos into their home and they straighten him out. They explain to him the way of God more adequately. At the end of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Paul mentions numerous women and the significant roles they are playing in the work of the early church. So in fact, the early church was not minimizing the role of women, but emphasizing the significance of women far beyond the cultural norms of the day. No church can faithfully fulfill the mandate to make disciples without women. We, we know this. We'd be foolish not to admit this. But even so, church, we cannot simply dismiss or anchor the end of this chapter in a chauvinistic culture that was on the wrong side of history, so to speak. For this is not where the Bible anchors it. The Bible anchors these instructions in the order and design of creation. Meaning it must transcend the boundaries of any particular culture, verse 13. So this is not a statement about giftedness. This is not a statement about discernment. This is not a statement about dignity or worth or value, but about responsibility and and roles. And the text suggests that that Eve was deceived. It's not implying that women are in any way any more likely to be duped, but it is pointing to Satan's subversion. Satan's subversion of God's design by confronting Eve instead of Adam. And what followed was Adam's abdication of his God-given responsibility to lead spiritually in the home. So Paul speaks here. And I think speaks specifically in the context of teaching with authority in the life of the early church. Leading and teaching. These are the primary responsibilities of pastors or elders or overseers. And in the section that follows, he lays out specific qualifications for that particular office. Suggesting, I think, that he has that position in mind. And likely only that position in mind when he speaks of this particular gender limitation. You see, the principle here for God's household is consistent with the principle of male leadership in the home, though this in no way limits the leadership of women in other spheres, whether politically or professionally or publicly or any other way. And to pretend that it do so exerts something on the text that I don't think is there. Though we are equal in dignity, value, and worth before God, there are, and we would be foolish to ignore these, there are a few differences between men's and women's roles. 
But I think that's what verse 15 is all about. Quite complicated verse. But in essence saying, I think, no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we try to remove gender distinctions, no guys are going to be bearing children anytime soon. I'm sure there are folks out there dedicated to that task right now, but praise God, that is not the case. We weren't made for that. So these specific instructions, friends, for believers about a particular uh, office in the church uh, need to be kept in mind. And we also need to keep in mind that Paul obviously isn't saying that all the men in the church can and should teach with authority in the church. He's talking about carefully guarding the position of pastor to ensure that the church prays, preaches, and practices the gospel for the glory of Jesus in the world. In other words, it's not about the leaders. It's about Jesus. But the leaders have a responsibility to teach the Scriptures rightly, ensuring that the church continues to be about the glory of Jesus. So friends, let's submit. Let's submit to the church's leadership for the sake of the church. Let's submit to the church's leadership for the sake, for the health and the well-being of the church. Any healthy church must have pastors who are leading the congregation to know and to follow Jesus. Pastors who will preach and teach the Scriptures. Pastors who will call for unity in Christ and address issues of immorality. Pastors who will speak the truth in love because they are more interested in faithfulness to Jesus than they are the popularity of men. Pastors who will proclaim the Gospel And hear me on this, the moment that they drift from doing so, the moment that the gospel is no longer front and center, the moment Jesus and His grace is no longer primary, we call them on it. Chapter 1, verse 20. What happened with Hymenaeus and Alexander in this church? For the sake of the purity of the church and the glory of Jesus in the world, as God's people, we must pray preach and practice the gospel for the glory of Jesus in the world. So, church, let's champion the gospel for the sake of the world. Let's champion the gospel, the good news of salvation by God's grace for the sake of the world. Let's hear what Paul is saying, but let's not miss the forest for the sake of the trees. See, all of first. Timothy chapter 2, all of 1 Timothy for that matter, is in the context of the pure and life-changing gospel going forth. This is not simply about male leadership. This is not even about the apostleship of a man named Paul. This is about the glory of Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and mankind who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So, we... Brothers and sisters, Meadowbrook Baptist Church, we pray with purity. And we commit to preach and to teach God's word with conviction. And to practice with faithfulness the good news of salvation in Jesus for the glory of Jesus in North Shelby County and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Let's preach. And let's practice the gospel of Jesus for the glory of Jesus in the world. And Father, may it be so. May we be faithful.
Lord, may we continually look to you and seek your guidance and invite you to lead us in all things, all that we do as a church. Lord, from our children's programs to our Sunday worship, Lord, all that we do, may the gospel be front and center. May we approach you with humility and faithfulness, a desire to hear from you, to be led by you, to glorify you in all things. Father, may we be faithful. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue working and stirring in our lives and our hearts, correcting and clarifying where I have not been clear. Father, speak to us. Encourage us, convict us, shape us, and transform us around the person and the work of Jesus Christ for His glory now and forevermore. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.